being in hospital, it was a case of like, right, I can uh, talk to people because I'm not in work. I've got some time off. Yeah. Let's just go around chatting to people and find out what's going on in the world. That's great. Yeah, it's great you decided to push this. Good. Yeah. So, Claire, so I guess I don't, know, I don't even know how to start this. Really, I guess just we're already here, so we're already doing it. So yeah. I know you from chatting to you on Twitter and chatting to you on, on Facebook and obviously liking each other's posts and having a good chat and a nibble. And I realise, of course, you're, you're, you're part of ASAP, as am I, but you're also a member of the Ghost Club and Society of Psychical Research. So in, in, from an interesting point of view, how do they differ? Um, I would say that, well, you know, the Ghost Club is the oldest um, yeah. society, the Society of Psychical Research um, came 20 years after Ghost Club. So Ghost Club was founded in 1862 and then SPR in 1882. Um, from my point of view, as being a member of both, I find the SPR very cerebral. Um, being a natural blonde, that's not necessarily my, my forte. Um, and some of the talks go straight over my head. But just like you said about doing this podcast and pushing people to learn more and know more and why they do things. That's probably the reason I'm a member of the SPR because if I don't get it all, I am learning. I'm learning something every time. Um, there is more of a scientifically applied methodology to what they do. Um, if you're familiar, obviously we'll be with the Enfield case and things. It's from there that the researchers first came out to the house to see the Hodgson family. Um, so they have their, what they call spontaneous cases committee. And they are the people who go out to the events as they're happening and record them. The Ghost Club, which I've been a member of for longer, is um, it's a really social society that's not taking anything away from it. In fact, for me, that adds to it. Um, our meetings are generally held in a pub and we'll have a speaker every month, like we do on the, we have it weekly now on ASAP, but it'd be one a month. And uh, it could be anything from cryptozoology to aliens to poltergeists, anything like that. And then afterwards, we'll sit down and sort of chew the fat about life and, and everything. And it is very much a, a pub-based thing. They do differ. I haven't been to a physical meeting of the SPR yet. But, um, yeah, I must try that sometime. And ASAP, ASAP's kind of beautifully in the middle, I would say. It is, isn't it? I, th I think it, it sits in a nice place in between where there's this kind of cerebral seriousness. But actually, it's sort of informal. You can kind of have a chat to anyone, and it feels... It feels a lot more warming and welcoming, I think, and fine. It does. I mean, ha having had to join ASAP during the lockdown, I haven't been to a physical meeting of that yet, but I've been to most of the um, the online ones I'm hosting tonight, apparently. Um, so that's very interesting. Oh, and Thursday, tonight's... of course it is. Yeah, it's a Thursday, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Tonight's talk is about Mothman, um, and it's given by a lady who actually was born in Point Pleasant in West Virginia, so we'll have the most amazing intimate knowledge, I suppose, of the history of Mothman and everything. It is really interesting because I say like uh, this week uh, when I was in hospital rather my friend Ben comes to me and goes do you want to use my Disney Plus account and I'm like all right. <laughs> so I have like Netflix and I pay for Amazon so it's quite nice to have one for actually for, for free off a friend um, yeah. and I noticed on there that X-Files is now listed as part of the Disney Plus projects because they bought Fox. Oh. Uh, so I was like oh let me just choose a random episode it happened to be an episode set in Florida, but it was very much a Mothman-inspired episode. And it was quite a tongue-in-cheek episode, because obviously there was quite a few of those where they're almost yes. like random stories, or they're all kind of having a bit of silly fun, uh, rather than the serious kind of narrative that there is through the show. 
And um, so basically, they're in, they are in, so Mulder and Scully are in the backseat of a car, and there's two kind of, not junior agents, but they're kind of like in the front seats of this car, and they kind of go through a town in Fatwater, Florida, and uh, there happens to be, um, oh, what's that? Someone's disappeared in the woods, basically, and Mulder and Scully get stuck in a roadblock. They go outside, and then they get involved in the, in the case. And it's very much a Mothman-inspired story. Uh, there appears to be a creature in the woods that has red eyes and appears to take people and also provide prophecy to yeah. um, someone by phone. And obviously Mulder references the, um, the Mothman case a number of times in that episode. Um, but so I was, I was on a podcast. As a, no, I, don't, I don't know if I was the guest or I was like a, a kind of in the background of, of an episode. And the guy who obviously wrote the book of Point Pleasant was the main guest. And um, he said uh, on the show that he realized that he was the man in black in the stories that have since become associated with the story. He says that when his car broke down uh, and he was then door knocking for assistance, he realized that he was in a dark suit. And all the stories about the men in black being at Point Pleasant actually in reference to him being the journalist who'd broken down and was asking for some help at people's doors. And, but it oh, didn't what, what a revelation! But that didn't come as a realisation until about 30 years later. Oh my goodness, yeah. amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, that's why I thought, I was like, oh, he effectively became part of his own story, didn't realise that, and was like, oh, that was actually <laughs> me. <laughs> well, I didn't realise the X-Files was on Disney Channel, so I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I, I didn't even know. And uh, so I've, I've watched like some sporadic episodes just because I think that's that is the kind of genius of X-Files really, isn't it? You can, most episodes are self-contained. They're kind of, a, um, so you can kind of drop in and drop out and watch whatever you want. Uh, Although there is the, 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 the overarching threads by each season. And I've watched some really random episodes. There was, there was <laughs> one that was, it was in black and white and it was deliberately out of sync with the audio in the mouth. And it was like a retelling of Frankenstein, or I think it's called Prometheus. And okay. uh, it was a, it's a town where uh, there was someone trying to recreate a body back to life. Um, and, I, and again, it was, it was very much a celebration of Mary Shelley's book, um, but told in a kind of a surreal way of that it almost, it was filmed like it was Lovecraft. And it was like, oh, oh this is really okay. Again, an episode I'd never seen, never watched before. Um, and I was, quite, I was quite taken in by it. <laughs> You're going to have to do a lot of binging before you have to give the account details back. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's quite a bit of a Disney, Marvel, Star Wars and all that on there. So watching some uh, random stuff at the moment. So what about you then? So didn't you know you gave a talk for ASAP last week, didn't you? How, how did that go? Yeah, it went okay. I think it was, um, I got some nice emails from it. And the lovely thing is I got some Twitter messages from people who whose books are on my bookshelf, my ghost bookshelf, as I call it. So um, to say they really enjoyed it and everything, which was lovely. Um, it was about the ghosts of Ireland and the folklore of Ireland and things. Sorry, what? Yeah, um, <laughs> everything, the Banshee and, and things like that. And then obviously talking about um, WB8 being um, one of the found, not founders of Ghosts, but he was one of the earlier members. So he joined in 1911. He'd initially given a talk to the organization and then became part of it. He had experienced um, visions and things since he was a child. He married a woman, uh, Georgie Hyde Lees, and she was a very talented um, spiritualist medium. 
and she often provided information to Yates through the medium of automatic writing. And between the two of them, then they would be able to see things and describe them and put them down. Um, so, so I guess we can still read about it now. But um, he had two main homes in County Galway. He had Renvar House, which is gorgeous, and Thor Ballylee Castle. Now, Thor Ballylee Castle is supposed to be haunted by the ghost of a, a Roman soldier that walks up and down. Sorry, an Anglo-Saxon uh, Roman soldier, Anglo-Saxon soldier walking up and down the stairs of the uh, tower and Yates has seen him. And there was a very famous photograph you can look up and it's called the Blinkthorn Ghost. It was taken by a, a tourist called David Blinkthorn who had come to Thor Ballylee to um, see where Yates had lived on the 100th anniversary of his passing. And he took a photo of a room that he thought was empty at the time. And he ended up capturing a very good boy spirit, or that's what it looks like anyway. There is speculation that it could be one of children of Yates. That's never been um, proven or otherwise. And then at Renville, um, he and Georgie actually spent their honeymoon there. Um, and instead of doing most of the stuff you would traditionally do on honeymoon, I suppose, they were actually trying to make contact with the spirits a lot of the time. And they managed to get in touch with, um, it was described as a pale, freckle-faced boy who was standing next to a mantelpiece in one of the rooms with this look of sort of abject horror and terror on his face and um he died in that room and I think he'd committed suicide was the story um so yeah Yates was absolutely fascinated with it wrote a lot about it um and was part of the the ghost club then until he died um so yeah I talked about that in the uh, the Irish ghost talk as well and then there was another one um called the Cooneen Poltergeist House it's something I wasn't familiar with actually till about a year ago. And the only reason is it's pure ignorance. I'm from the South of Ireland um, and this happened up in the North. Um, I didn't realize and I'm ashamed I didn't that it's actually a very well-known uh, story over there. There was a widow, uh, Mrs. Murphy, her husband died in a freak accident back in the early part of the 19th century. Um, and she was left in this house with one son, Michael and five daughters. And then soon after the husband died in this freak accident, and the annoying thing is you don't ever get to know what the freak accident is. Um, shortly after he died, the poltergeist activity started. So initially it would be knocking on the door and then a member of the family would go to answer the door and there'd be no one there. And then the knocking would proceed around the house on the walls, doors and windows inside the house. Um, the house itself was quite a strange layout. It had sort of um, a hayloft that went above, it had an outside, um, stairs and a hayloft that went above the house there was nobody in there obviously there was hay kept in there but there was nobody physically in there but there was often the sound of footsteps walking around and the thing I think is fascinating that I said in the ASAP talk about this case is that going back to Enfield again one of the things that I think made that so believable so real for a lot of people was the caliber of the independent witnesses now, if you remember, they had a female police officer come yeah. and she witnessed and put in her official statement what she had seen. She'd seen a chair slide across the floor at Enfield. Well, the Cooneen house equally had a priest, as you'd expect. They got some of their friends and neighbours to come in who witnessed the what was going on. And they also had the local MP, a man called Cahar Healy, who said he had never seen anything like it in his life and could not believe what he was watching. Um, so you would have the priest saying prayers and 
a shadow figure would appear on the wall next to him, right, literally materialize the wall beside him, like ominous and threatening. And um, the bed would lift up, cutlery would fly across the room, crockery smash on the floor. Um, all the friends and neighbors saw this and they were eventually given permission for one of the only exorcisms to be performed in the island of Ireland. And they actually performed the ceremony twice, the rite of exorcism. Neither of them worked. What it did was really, really piss off whatever was there. Um, and the, it, it started to get a lot worse, the banging, the knocking, the disturbances. Uh, what actually drove the Murphys away from the house, funnily enough, wasn't so much the poltergeist itself. If you live in a small community, you'll know that one of the things about sharing things with friends and neighbours is that sometimes, if it's a bit weird, the, the finger turns back on you, doesn't it? Yeah. And um, the neighbours and friends were wondering why this was happening to the Murphys. And then this rumour, or whatever it was, started to go around that the son, Michael, had found a demonic book called the Legion of Doom in the nearby Cooneen Forest and had been using it to conjure witches and demons. So find a book yeah. like that in the woods. Yeah, I know. And then um, so all the neighbours then automatically decided, okay, they bought this on themselves um, and everything started to turn against them. So they decided to leave the house. They literally packed up lock, stock and barrel. But they only and left because of the pressure of their social community, is that right? Yeah, because after the exorcism, the, the phenomena got a lot worse, but they held tight. They stayed there um, through, through the worst of the phenomena. But when the neighbors turned against them, I think that's when they felt really isolated, really threatened. They booked passage on a ship to America, got into their cabin, and it started again, the knocking and banging on the cabin doors and the walls and the ceiling of the cabin. And it was going on all the time. And the captain was called by other passengers to warn them. And he said, if it didn't stop, that he would put them off before they were able to reach America. He would put them off the ship somewhere. I don't know if they must've had a stop or something on the way. Um, so anyway, they made it to America, but the haunting had affected one of the girls so much that she never recovered from it. And she spent the rest of her life in an insane asylum in America. Well, so that's a very sad story. The thing about America, isn't it? They generally are like quite quick to dismiss and put you in a psychiatric unit. Um, yeah. And that, that was certainly the done thing. Uh, I don't even know what their psychiatric, um, what's the word for it, their medication is now like, because I was in the impression, say, like going into COVID, they actually let all those patients out. I'm sure <laughs> I read that. I'm sure I read that. Um, hey. And I was listening to, a, I get a podcast that pretty much said the same thing, that um going into covid they let a lot of those patients back out into the community and that's why there's a lot of instability on, on the streets or whatever like more homeless people um but no it's really interesting about so that was say early 1900s you should say yeah the turn of the century early 1900s yeah and so imagine we obviously don't know for sure i wonder if the hauntings continue to affect that person whilst in still in the psychiatric um unit you know it, if, it, if they were following her yeah, yeah. Like the poor girl, she never, she never fully recovered. It just, it seemed maybe she was away from the situation, and then she sort of had a massive realization of what had happened, and that's was, where she ended up. Was there any diaries of that? Because a lot of people in those days kept uh, diaries and journals. 
Um, I don't know, actually. I would like to look into that. I would imagine having had to approach the church for permission to perform the exorcism, there must be some sort of form of written record, at least from the priest's point of view. And I would say as well, probably from the MP's point of view, I would say that he has um, written down something somewhere. But I think, the, again, the SPR would be the place they have the archives that we can look into there. I, I must do that, actually. So I guess with, with exorcisms now, they're almost like TV occurrences now, because they're so... You see them on TV happening all the time. It's a bit like, yeah. really? <laughs> Is that... How do they do this? How do they get permission for this? How... Um, can anyone do an exorcism? I'm sure that's not the case. And uh, Oh, yeah, it's, it's like collect some crisp packets now and become an exorcist, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I, I've heard stories of people doing exorcisms. I'm, I'm, I'm very sceptical of that because I'm going, yeah, but you're a person who attends the local, like, Pagan church or you do or poking, like, rituals and so on. How come you're doing an exorcism? And I don't understand all that. So, yeah, I don't know. And do you believe in the right of exorcism? What, what's your opinion on it? I'm not, I'm not. So I would understand it to be, if I was Catholic or I was a strict believer, I would understand the value of an exorcism working because I would understand it's intrinsically part of my faith. However, yeah. not being of, say, a, a Catholic persuasion, I would struggle to believe that that would work for anyone who's not. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, because I guess it, it's belief in, in demons and, and the... Um, ancient beings that appear to be affecting people so obviously you're calling on the biblical rights uh, a passage to help facilitate that moving on and helping free that person through religious rights so yeah. again if you're not religious or you're not of certainly any of you say a christian or if you're at church of england does it work the same way do, do you still have to go to um a bishop do you start sorry do you have to get 11 bishops to get permission uh if, yes as yeah. I think it is in in uh, catholicism i don't know and, and and often, I mean, I think it just works as sort of a salve, almost like a bookend for um, the person who's going through the poltergeist activity or whatever. They need some sort of um, end. And I think when that end comes from the church and it comes from somebody you've had to get permission from and somebody who's there in all the serious garb and splashing holy water around, I think for some, it might just be that mental lifting of whatever's been happening. See, I have dealt with a poltergeist case um, about five years ago. Uh, that was like, an interesting one, where it was uh, in Nottingham. That it's um, it was a particular. Two friends of mine came to me and says, "I hate to use the word amateur, but they're kind of they're getting into it." And now they came to me like with um, gusto. They were like, "Christian, this is this this is the real thing." And I'm like, "Okay." So tell, tell me what the story is. And they explained to me that uh, it was a friend of their uncle's, and this particular house. Uh, she was a nurse who had moved in with her daughter and they had um, phenomena happening in their house where you probably have a bowl like this yourself in your bathroom it's got like kind of blue glass pebbles in it or balls of some kind she says that what was happening is they were getting levitated from the bathroom to the top of the stairs and they were then rolling down the stairs being so they were watching tv at the bottom because um, their living room kind of have a bit of an open plan so you go through their front door you're in the living room and to the right-hand side of the room is a staircase that goes up. Um, okay. And the bathroom is to the right of that. So they were saying um, to my friend, uh, Mark and Ralph, that the, the, the marbles that were in this bowl were coming out onto the staircase, and then they were being rolled down the stairs. 
Um, they described the, the dog going crazy and in a corner of the room, there was phenomena where um, she described that she was walking up the stairs to a bedroom and someone ran up behind her. She heard the footsteps, so she ran into the bedroom. She closed the door, held the door closed, and then suddenly ran into the door. Uh, and that scared her to the point that she couldn't come out until the next morning. Um, the mother and the daughter there were then crying every night, sleeping in the same bed, um, holding arm in arm because there was crazy things happening and noises around the house. Um, so, but when myself and a couple of guys who, who I believe are more serious into the check of this phenomena became involved, it, there, was, there was a lot of um, other things that started to happen. So one of which was that they had, they've discovered that she was on medication and that medication uh, produced hallucination. And it was a certain type of um, antidepressant. There's actually, we actually read the packaging and she herself was a nurse. So we, uh, we checked this, we read this packaging out and then in the bedroom, she says, um, the bedroom itself is where phenomena was occurring, mainly in the form of a figure who would appear at the bottom of the bed it would then stand over her. She said that she saw a face repeatedly step over the bed. Um, what was really interesting about this bedroom was the amount of mirrors that this room had. So if you can imagine this room is a, as an oblong bedroom um, and the door is in the back right of this room. She had a large double bed. The large double bed had um, light fittings on. So there was an energy saving light bulb, but the, there was two at the top end of the bed, two at the bottom end of the bed, and she had a really low um, lamp kind of you know, that ceiling light was above the bed and this had an energy saving bulb in. So we had an EMF meter and we put it on the center of the bed. Now this thing is only, um, with these lights on, this thing is just, it's maxed, maxed on this gauge of detecting an EMF field. So we then, we basically, we changed, uh, one of the guys as an electrician. So what he had done, he changed the lights back to traditional light bulbs, uh, okay. glass ones. And then that amount of electromagnetic field going into the center of the bed where this girl was sleeping dissipated entirely. Um, one side of the room had four large wardrobe mirrors. So what we did, we turned them around just in case that was kind of like reflecting stuff around the room. Yeah. So that, that very night, she said it was the best night's sleep she ever had in her life. So, so what we think was really happening was that so she was seeing reflections around the room because she had a hat stand in one corner. And uh, at, even it freaked us out a couple of times. It just basically just had a heavy coat on it and a hat. So every time you were looking around, you kept seeing reflections of this a hat in the corner of the room. So we're thinking in the middle of the night, you're a bit dazed. Um, maybe you were spotting that. Um, and when we turned the, the mirrors around uh, on, the, I think on the second night, she said that, that was the best night ever uh, because she'd, felt, she'd said she never felt threatened that night. Um, the daughter felt better. The phenomena stopped happening in the house. Um, one of the things that we'd found downstairs, again, using an EMF meter that we would use in a professional way, because like one of our guys is an electrician, he's scanning the wires on the wall to find out where things are. But in the center of the room, they had a large CRT television and uh, the field that this thing was giving out, we're just holding it like in our hand, going to go to the wall to find out where the cables were in the living room. And this thing is like, again, it's maxing out on this, on this dial and going, so what's in this room is given off a field this strong. And we, again, we found out it was the television. It now was more than three feet away, right where these people have got a sofa. 
And you're wondering what, what these people are experiencing. I think they were just getting too much electromagnetic radiation in their head. And then it's, as soon as we move the room around, put the sofa further away, they, all the phenomena stopped in the house. It's, there's so much of that story that is kind of typical of the activity that is reported around a poltergeist case. But I think for me, what that really shows is how diligent you guys were. Um, and I think you probably did the sort of investigation that people in the SPR and the Ghost Club um, are dying for. And, you know, we don't get it enough, really. Um, you looked into what the man-made factors were before jumping to a paranormal. Oh, absolutely. Um, we're talking now because we want to believe in the paranormal. We're talking because we have an interest in the paranormal. Sure. But when you go along to someone's house who is genuinely being tormented, then you have to put that sort of, you have to put yourself aside and what you want to find. And you have to look for the real reason that's happening and the everyday reason. And that's exactly what you did. Yeah. And I, you brought a lot of comfort. It really, it, it kind of, in many ways, the television shows really bother me. And what they bother me with is the, the beliefs that they must leave the people they've gone there to see or are seeking help and what they leave behind mentally. And what I mean by that, I can remember watching a particular show, I think it was called Haunted and Me or something like that, or My Ghost Story or something. And it was the, it was these, the particular story that bothered me. You can hear ice cream down outside. <laughs> uh, I thought that was spooky sound effects you were putting in. <laughs> it was these two ladies who played, were clearly spiritually minded they appeared to be like Gypsy Romani kind of characters. They both had flowing skirts and they both had dark hair. And uh, they clearly were, the, I think they were an American couple of investigators who were like traveling in the UK and had gone to speak to, I think they were in Whitby or something like that. So they'd gone to this house and they had then done their overnight investigation. These two, these, the two people who lived there had um, admitted they'd been using, using a Ouija board and they'd been summoning and been talking to ghosts and spirits and so on, as their faith recognises they should do. But then the, the, the two people who'd come to investigate, who stayed in the house overnight, left, left them with a story that, sorry, they had one of them ovulus devices, and it said the word <laughs> devil, and it said the word demon, and it said the word Satan, and it's like, okay. And they then <laughs> told them this in the next day's rev, a revelation of this is what we experienced last night. We experienced um, noises and scratching, and we believe there might be well be a demon in your house. And then, see you later, guys. Have a good day. And the, 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 the two the two Romani women were like, "Well, that's exactly what we expected. That's that's who we are. That's who we know is here." And I was like, "So what? So the devil has come to our house in Whitby. Is hanging around in this house. And what you guys have just done is come to this house and then gone. Yep, the devil's definitely here. See you later." And it's like. This couple now now knows and feels that two experts in the field have told them that they're right. There's a demon living in their house. What yeah. is that doing to the psychology of people who potentially are already spiritually minded anyway? And now they've got confirmation that there's a demon in the house, potentially the actual devil. And I was just like, what? <laughs> Not only does it do a massive amount of damage to people who are open in their psychic beliefs who are worried who are scared who genuinely believe there might be something going on but then to call in experts so-called experts to do something like that does a massive amount of damage to the paranormal field for sure no i was um i haven't done any house investigations right like that for quite some time ethically um since about 2011 um 
I can remember I actually wrote a questionnaire which ASAP also adapted. The um, I was in a house uh, with three other investigators, and again, it was it was a very same scenario where they had poltergeist-like activity reported. Well, apparently there was a bed shaking. Uh, there was a bedroom in particular that appeared to be a focus, and a daughter that was a bit of a focus. And I can remember being in this uh, this room on my own, and I was like, "What if this person's lying?" Was the thought that ran through my head. And I could see like the bed, and I could see like the kids' chest of drawers, and I could see the kids' toys. And I'm going, "Imagine if someone said, or someone's not happy with the service that we have been asked to here to come here to do." They could say anything. I felt so vulnerable in that moment that ethically it changed my entire outlook on investigations. There's no way that I would put myself or any member of a team in a dangerous position where potentially someone who's a little bit off kilter, because this this person who's in this house was just a little bit little bit off that you know, whether that was depression or you know, potentially um something more serious like schizophrenia or something, they could say anything. And then potentially you are in a very dangerous position with the police or with social services or any kind of difficulty like that. And I was just like, what are people putting themselves in for? So from that point, I've never done any like a, an investigation where I've gone to someone's house. I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't justify doing it anymore. And I literally yeah. just kind of kept my hands off as a as a researcher. And I've just kept in contact with the right people. I've been writing articles and making videos. But uh, there's no way I would ethically put a team in, in that position unless they were all verified, um, unless they've all got police pass, as it were, they've been checked. And checked. I, I think that's where things like the SPR, Spontaneous Cases Committee, come into their own. I mean, I have been in love with the paranormal, you probably have too, for years and years and years. Um, my aspiration one day, I would love to be on the Spontaneous Cases Committee, but for all the right reasons, I have been a police officer. I mean, I'm a mum, so I know, I know uh, like how teenage girls and it tends to be those that invoke the poltergeist activity a lot of the time. I know how their minds work. I know the torment. None of us live in a perfectly calm house. Um, and when you get a call to go along to someone's house who they think genuinely they're experiencing something from another world, you have got to tread so carefully. You don't know, like you say, if there is latent issues of abuse there. Sure. If there, it's if it's the menopause, is menstruation, is it, is it just a bad family atmosphere? Are the parents fighting? Um, are the kids hiding something? Are the, it's it's so dangerous, and I really think that you have taken the exact right attitude there. As much as you would like to go into the house and help people with the knowledge you have and the experience you have, it is best in these cases, I guess, to step back and to hand it over to people who can really put their names to it. I mean, everyone on that list at the SPR, um, it's doctor this and, you know, captain that. And, and, you know, I think that's because you start, it doesn't, you don't have to have letters beside your name, but it does give it a certain amount of gravitas and, and you have to stand by what you do in that house. You have to be accountable for it. Yeah, that's right. I think we, you said the right word there is accountable. Um, I saw a, a post pop up on Facebook a few days ago of someone, it was, it, was like, it was like a local Nottingham ghost group, effectively, said, oh, do you have any haunted premises that we can come along to and come into a house? And I was like, are oh, you guys, like, have you had CLB checks? And then I, I got a reply that was quite um, abrupt. That was, we know what we're doing. We've been at this for 18 years. You can't tell us what to do. And I'm like, I'm trying to make sure you guys are safe. <laughs> yes, cover yourselves. 
because yeah i mean I th going out looking for activity in a house that, that there are probably scared children in is not the way to go no and, and just people who potentially might just say whatever just to get in the press um yeah it, it bothers me it, it bothers my mind that people would do that and we know what people are like people make uh fakes and photoshops every day all day for the sake of just doing it um yes. so people are also going to be doing that at the house too so come around to my house i've got strange things that are happening or we can have a Ouija board session or we can have um you know we could do call the spirits in here and see who turns up and you go well if that's the case how are you gonna potentially close that situation because there might be people of your team who are you know sensitive not in a, in a psychical way but sensitive to what the visual stimulus is and how it will affect them going away from that situation you know yeah will they believe because of all the movies they've seen that something might follow them home in a spiritual way even if they're not prepared for that but then they might freak themselves out and then they might potentially conjure something up themselves and their own fears rather than being actually something there but that could psychologically scare someone in the same way and going back to what you said about those experts before who just sort of came along and said in Whitby it's, yeah there's something in your house all right bye you can't just um go along to someone's house take part in a Ouija board session slam it shut at 10 o'clock because you want to get home for the news <laughs> and then leave them to it it's that's not how it works you have to be in it for the long haul, I think. For sure, for sure. And I think that, that's, the, that's the best way. You know, you have to be um, objectively assertive and you kind of have to run by the ethics. You, you have to have a certain level of standards that you, you won't break. Even if you have a passion and an interest in the topic, you have to yeah. have that standard. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I did want to tell you as well quickly, I'm not sure how much recording time we've got left, about um, another talk I did. Okay. Are we okay for time? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, no, um, it was about a, another talk I did to ASAP a few weeks ago now, no, a couple of months. Um, it was about the moving coffins in Barbados. Okay, I must have missed that one. So, John, do you want to fill us in? Uh, well, yeah, you can look on the um, the ASAP YouTube channel and the uh, Christian Jensen Roma, he puts them all up there. Um, but for those of you like that don't know, it is about a... Um, a tomb in Barbados. I read about it when I was about 10 years old in my first ghost book. And I said one day, because I was living in Ireland at the time, it was wet, it was windy, it was cold. I'd heard the legend of the Banshee, etc., over and over. This one was completely different to everything I'd ever read. It was this tomb up on a hillside in Barbados um, of a rich family. And there was one woman entombed there already in a wooden coffin, Thomasina Goddard. Then the tomb, which happened at the time, like if her family line ran out or something and there was no one else, there was no money to maintain a tomb, it would have taken a lot of money at the time. Um, that was then sold on to this rich slave owning family called the Chasers. But she was left in there, obviously, you can't just move a coffin out of there, she was left there. Um, then people in the Chase family started to die. First of all, um, it was a young girl, I think she was only two years old. Marianne, she was buried in a metal coffin in the tomb. A few weeks later, her older sister Dorcas, uh, I think she was nine. Um, some say, I mean, this is very tragic, some say that her father, he was a really horrible man by all accounts, horrible to his slaves, horrible to his family, horrible to people around him. Um, they think he may have been abusing her. Either way, whether he was abusing her, whether she was just heartbroken at the death of her younger sister, she died. Um, some reports say she starved herself to death, the poor thing, she, and she was then buried. Um, when 
her coffin, her coffin was then put in. Um, Thomas Chase, who was the dad, whether he was feeling guilty, whether one of the slaves murdered him or something, he probably followed only about a year later. When the tomb was opened up to accommodate his coffin, the tombs of all the, the coffins of all the other people in there, the two girls' metal coffins and Mrs. Goddard's wooden coffin were completely thrown about the tomb. Like standing on their end, the wooden one had bits chipped off it. It looked like it had been violently sort of thrown around the tomb. And I mean, this, this tomb had been sealed by a big concrete capstone every time it had been shut. It's got a door and um, that would have been locked and then the capstone put on. So the, obviously people were very baffled. It wasn't happening to any other tombs in the graveyard. So it wasn't subsidence, it wasn't flooding. I mean, there has been studies done since that shown like whether the coffins would float if there was water in there. Um, it, it did, like I say, it didn't affect any other coffins there, anything else in the graveyard, it was this tomb. So they put the coffins back. Um, they put uh, Thomas Chase on the ground. They put Thomasina Goddard on the ground. Then they put the two girls coffin sort of on top of them for a bit of extra stability. Um, and then a young boy in the family died not long after. He then um, was being buried and they opened the, the um, tomb again. And lo and behold, the coffins were all thrown about again, completely thrown around the tomb, smashed around, standing one upside down on its end against the wall, all, just toppled all over the place. So they were obviously really freaked out, the people at the time. And they, um, they went to these great lengths to sort of try and find out what was happening. They scattered sand, fine sand around it to make sure there was no flooding, no water coming in. They sealed the tomb again. They put the governor, Lord Combermere at the time, he came along to the last funeral wow. service and he um, wow. put his own seal on the, sorry about the dog barking in the background. <laughs> uh, he put his own seal on the tomb. Um, and then when they came back with another burial, the same wow. thing had happened again. The coffins were all thrown around, hadn't wow. affected anywhere else wow. in the island. Um, and yeah, at that time they were all moved out. All the coffins were taken out, buried elsewhere in the churchyard and the tomb hasn't wow. been used since. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, do you think perhaps it was, whatever it was, was just a disturbance in the tomb or were they buried elsewhere? I guess you've answered that question there. So I guess the, the ultimate test of that would be, let's put something else in there and see what happens. Yeah, I, I think, I, I'm not sure what happened. I mean, I know the dog, the, um, the sorry, the dog, I'm just, <laughs> I know the tomb was left empty after that and I went to visit it in 2018. That was sort of the culmination of a, a dream for me. It's something I always wanted to do. So on the day of my 40th birthday, apart from having the usual sort of spa treatment and, um, and everything and the cocktails that you normally have on the beach in Barbados. And I would urge anyone actually to go to Barbados, even if you're not into ghosts, just go because it's so beautiful. Um, but for the rest of the day, we walked up the hill to the churchyard. Um, from having seen the pictures, having read the books and everything, it was so easy to identify, which was the Chase Vault. Um, I was so excited to find it. My whole family came along with me, my husband and two daughters. And one of them was brave enough to sort of tiptoe down and the other one just like stood at the top going, nope, not a chance. Um, so yeah, I spent a bit of time in there wandering around and these things are always smaller than they're going to be. Does that mean it's yes. open? Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the church is open and I think there was, um, see me and my husband had this disagreement on what was actually happening that day. I think it was a wedding, he thinks it was a funeral. Um, but either way, there was a lot of people in the church, this beautiful Christ Church, parish church, it's called. 
Um, there was a lot of people there, but we were able to go into the churchyard. We were able to walk down the steps, the stone steps. Um, it's a little sort of rusty gate, but it's not locked or anything. And you can just literally walk in and look around the tomb. Right. And I mean, for, for a little girl from Ireland who had dreamed of doing that 30 years ago, that was amazing. That was so cool. So, yeah. There's quite, there's quite a few stories in those, on those kind of books that we all had as kids. Well, I guess yeah. not everyone had as kids, but I, I can remember like, the Osborne Book of Ghosts and all those kind of things. And I, I go to the school library and get every ghost and archaeology book that I can get my hands on. Um, and there was, a few, there was a few cases of always like, can we recreate that? Can we go there? Can we do this? <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there was one particular case. It was it was a um, again it was one of those phantom hitchhiker stories that's kind of stuck with me actually. Um, where it was a girl who was at the side of the road. She was getting wet. Guy pulls over, picks her up, puts her in the car, and she says that she lives like four miles down the road, and uh, she's really wet. So he gives her his jumper to, to kind of get warm, and they drive through a tunnel or something like that, and then he turns around and she's gone. Um, but she, he then travels on to the address of the where she'd said to go. The a woman answers the door and says, "Ah, well, you're not the only one this week," kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's my daughter. She died three to four years ago. She had a car accident up the road. Um, and he says, "My jumper's gone." He says, "Oh, you'll find it on her gravestone, graves down the road." Uh, and go visit it, and, and lo and behold, he found his jumper draped over. The gravestone, and I think that's—I think I'm sure that's actually in the Osborne Book of Ghosts, or certainly a book of that particular time. And we're going to go. Why am I going to do that? <laughs> Same as that one in America. That really, she shivers, doesn't it? It does. That's it's like the, the, the guy experienced that, appears to have wrote that down, and it's been recreated and told here again. Um, the same as that. Um, there's that train track in America where apparently spirit children will put their hands on the back of the car and push the car over the track. Um, oh to make, yes. To make sure it, no train crashes, and uh, it it, it um, they put lots of people put talcum powder on the boot and on, on the back of the car to see where these kids' handprints appear, and uh, that's a pretty fascinating story that I guess a lot of people recreate on a regular basis, but I never see any videos about it. I think, I think I, that happened, didn't it? Because the school bus got stuck on the track and yeah. smashed into by the train and it's thought that's thought to be the providence of these children trying to make sure it doesn't happen again that's right yeah uh, that, the last time i saw that story retold was sightings and uh they worked out it's actually the, the road has an optical illusion where the road is actually going uh it's going down so the, uh but the perception by a visual looks like it's going up and uh, so actually wow. what's happening is the car is when you take the hand off the handbrake, it's actually just rolling forward uh, rather than being um, ghost pushing it, but they can't explain how the hands were ending up on the back. Which stories uh, like that just kind of, yeah. you know, ooh, it's good. Again, it's fascinating, like you say, probably a very natural down-to-earth reason for it, but when you read them as a child, they form in your imagination, and I think they stay with you for life then. They do, and then they make you wonder, so what else is out there that um, defies explanation that, it must be happening on a routine basis. Can we just go along and check it out? And I think yeah. that's what investigators perhaps should be doing, uh, in my mind anyway. Well, I have, I have an eternally patient husband, I have to say, that I've been with for 18 years, and he has completely supported everything I do. He knows that wherever we go on holiday, there is going to be some sort of paranormal angle to it. <laughs> So um, we did, we went to Florida and we um, took one of those airboats on the Everglades. Now, for, for everyone else that you do that because you want to see the alligators, you want to see the sights and everything. For me, it was because of Flight 401. 
and that's the talk I'm doing soon for ASAP as well about the haunting of that I wanted to see what the Everglades are like what the crash must have been like to land in that swamp and everything um that's another story that's always stayed with me so wherever I go it's always going to have this paranormal angle um and I think my husband and kids have just you know given themselves up to it now they know <laughs> I, I saw a, a quite a disturbing video about a year ago actually um it was it's almost kind of like a fail army video in fact it was a, it was a dash cam on a florida highway going over a bridge and uh so it's a couple of guys who are on, on a moped or on a, on a scooter bike basically and they're kind of weaving in and out of traffic and this dash cam captures the fact that they're weaving in and out of traffic and then he clips the the bollard going into onto the bridge so he this got this two this bike it's got two people on it hits the, the the concrete barrier and then the guy at the back actually goes over the top guy and falls down over into the river and then the guy uh, the um the the guy who's dash is gets out the car runs over and he then he says fuck a gator got him and you can hear it on the on the cam and it's like oh oh (laughs) (laughs) wow you think you're having a bad day yeah, they oh evening in a traffic. Next thing you know, you're getting tossed into a river, and then turn up as an alligator's dinner. And how how long could that take? Scary stuff. <laughs> yeah, they're obviously hungry and waiting for something. So yeah, he yes. just turned up as an appetizer, I guess. Absolutely, thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, so so what was perhaps the first ghost story you ever heard that intrigued you to a point where it stayed with you for life? What was the first oh. one for you? Apart from the Chase Vault in Barbados, that stayed with me, I think, because it was tropical and different to what I was used to. Um, probably the ghosts of the Watertown as well. Um, I don't know why I found that so compelling. I think probably in the book I was looking at at the time, it was one of the only ones that actually had a photo, that one in Raynham Hall, that had, you know, the famous photo of the two faces of the seamen in the water um, after they were dead. Um, that always stayed with me. And... I know it could be pareidolia. In fact, it probably has been proven as pareidolia many times since. But I just think it was a really compelling picture to go along with the story. Yeah. Um, how about you? Do you have one that stayed with you? Um, it's probably the, um, the, the story of the Phantom Hitchhiker, in fact. I'm just gonna, yeah. It's such a simple story um, that has a, has, a, has a tangent of something really, really interesting. And I guess yeah. if you were if you were making if you were a filmmaker as I am, or if you were uh, making a documentary, it's probably the most easiest ghost story to show. Um, yes. Just because it doesn't need any professional actors, you literally could just have us on a straight road. Um, and I just think there's something nice and tangible about it that feels credible. That when you put a normal people into a bizarre situation, strange things happen. Um, and I like that. Um, yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I saw like various UFO books as a kid because I was just tapping into lots of different, what I, what I now have Fortean stories, effectively, or Fortean accounts. Um, yeah. Well, I was, gonna, I was actually going to ask you, so um, obviously you've been from Ireland, um, and obviously I'm assuming you look into lots of legends and mythology and stuff. So what's your, what's your knowledge of the Tahath Diodanan? Uh Oh, we call it Tutsdana. Okay, Danan, yes. I, I guess my pronunciation is a bit terrible. <laughs> No, no, not at all. Um, no, do you know what? That's something that I, I really should know more about that. I remember learning, we actually did learn about that in school. 
um, and the brown bull. Of, uh, I don't know if you know about any of these stories. And Ku Cullen. I don't know about the story of the brown bull, no. The brown bull was sort of thought to be a, um, an omen that helped the, the High Kings of Ireland to win a, a war, basically. And it was, it was owned by, I think, Queen Maeve. Um, in the end, it was sort of killed or stabbed or something and it led to the loss. Do you know what? This is awful. My, my knowledge is just coming out as crap now. But um, yeah, and then there was, obviously, you've got the story of Giant's Causeway. Um, you've probably heard that lots of yeah, times. Sure. Um, yeah, there's, there, it, for a small island, it has a lot of tales to tell. It does. Um, it? And I, I will tell you something, and I don't know if this will be of interest to you, but it's um, so... I come from a place in Ireland called County Mayo, and it's right on the west coast of Ireland. And literally the next stop from there is America. And it's gorgeous, it's wild, it's rugged. Just think Father Ted. Father Ted's not filmed too far from there. So that's exactly what it's like, a small town thing and everything. Um, anyway, we have a Gaelic football team in County Mayo who are good, they're really good. And I've supported them for years. I used to go to the matches with my dad and everything. Um, they're playing in the final, the All-Ireland final, this weekend against Tyrone. And the reason I'm telling you this from a Fortean point of view is that there's supposed to be a curse on the team. Okay, interesting. And what happened was the Mayo team won the All-Ireland final in 1951. Um, they won it in 50 and then they won it in 51. And what happens when they come home, they come home from Dublin. So it's literally from the east of the country where they play the final right down to the west. And as soon as they get to Mayo, then there'd be all like bonfires and celebrations and everything. So their, um, their homecoming parade was going through Ireland, got to Mayo, got to the town of Foxford. And they really expected there'd be a lot of singing, dancing excitement. They were all completely pissed, as you can imagine. They were singing, they were dancing, they were holding the cup up and everything. There was no one there to meet them in Foxford. And they were kind of a bit freaked out by this. Like, why is no one here? Why is there no party? But they carried on carousing anyway. And all of a sudden, the, it sort of went really quiet and they were sort of nudging each other. And they noticed right beside where their truck was, there was a funeral cortege led by a very, very sombre looking priest. Um, now in Ireland, as you know, funerals are very social occasions in Ireland. Yeah. But when I say that, I mean the before and after. I mean, before the person is toasted and remembered and after they're toasted, and but the actual bit is sacrosanct, the bit in the middle, the cortege, the church, that's all very somber. Um, the priest was walking with the funeral cortege. They didn't stop celebrating. They were drunk. They didn't really, they didn't acknowledge the funeral cortege. When the priest approached them to tell them it was a um, well-known member of the town, they basically told them where to stick his holy water. Oh, man. Um, and they carried on partying and he said to them you've done really well to win the All-Ireland but you will never win it again until every member of this team is dead so that was 1951 70 years ago and we have reached the final many times and we've been favourites a few times and we have never won it since and there is one member of the team still alive very old man. We're not going to win yet then. <laughs> no, no. Um, so there's, the, yeah, so we're playing on Saturday. I'm completely nervous, I'm completely excited for it. I always get my hopes up and I always end up in a snotty, sobbing mess at the end of the night. But um, yeah, the theory is, like you say, they can't win it this year because he's still alive. So depending what you believe, 
Well, let's, but I, let's see how well they do. Hopefully they'll uh, win it and show that the curse isn't actually real. And, that uh, would be just amazing. Had of, just had a run of bad luck. Yeah, yeah, a 70-year run of bad luck. <laughs> you, you hear stories, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't follow, like, American sports or whatever. I, like, I listen to a couple of comedians who talk a lot about sports and their stuff, and they go, oh, they haven't won a cup since 1962 and 64, like, running off the top of their head, and I'm going, man, they're just, they're, is their team badly managed? <laughs> What's happening? They're not getting enough funding. And I, I don't generally follow sports as such now, and I, I think, man, so people haven't won stuff for 50, 60 years, and you're going, so what does it take for a team to actually reach a cup or become the best or, you know, top of the league kind of thing? I mean, I, I guess it's a lot of investment and player passion. And, uh, but I guess a lot of things also have to come together is that other teams have to not do as well. Um, yes. And they have to have like slight injuries or they, they, one guy's pulled a calf kind of thing. They're top players off that day. Um, you know, all, all those factors come into be and at the end of the day when they're on a the pitch, it's, it's kind of evened out and that's just the best team wins. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it, whenever there is a sort of curse story involved or anything that could be a bit weird, then obviously people like that side of it too. I bet they do, because I guess that it's like the willingness to want to prove it wrong and then it keeps going, yeah. no, no, you're still going to lose. <laughs> but hopefully they'll, uh, they'll uh, do well this year. Well, I'll tell you what, you'll know, because you're only in Nottingham up the road, and if they win, you'll probably hear me from there. So, yeah, you'll know <laughs> if they win. Quite, quite true. We hear, we hear everyone. We hear every story coming through here. Now, the reason I asked you about the Tahar culture is um, what's really fascinating me is about technology of the gods. And I, I produced a video and I did a couple of presentations about these kinds of things. And yeah. uh, they, they clearly had some really interesting technology that they yeah. took across Ireland, like the cauldron of Dagda and the, um, um, what once was there? Mm, no. The, the uh, Goada with the silver hand. Yeah, the silver hand. Oh, right. That was a really interesting story. Um, and, and I guess that there's, there's similar stories of the romance of Excalibur, which is the ability for an object to cut weapons and shields of the, of the age with ease. Um, and that appears to have made its way to, to England, even France. And it, it's really interesting. They, they almost seem to predate Irish culture. And they, they, of course, claim that they came from an island off the north coast of Ireland uh, that was sinking beneath the waves and they had to come to Ireland to survive. And they fought against the, um, the Firbolg, I think they were called. Is that how you pronounce it? F-I-R-B-O-L-G? Firbolg. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, they said they fought against them. And, yeah. and that's why there's a number of castles and fortifications uh, that face north and west of, of Scotland as well that were fortifications against uh, this culture that was basically <coughs> trying to survive and come across um, into the land. But of course, there's no island off the west or north coast of Ireland, is there? Um, well, there's, yeah, there's Tory Island in Donegal and there's... Um... Off where I come from in Mayo to the northwest, it'd be like Ackle Island and Inishki Islands. But um, yeah, I, I think probably the yeah, I know what you're saying that it is. Um, and they was they were considered to be from the other world, weren't they? That's right. Yeah, they and there was characters with them who have names that are also found in Norse mythology. There was uh, Loki. Uh, there was uh, Morgana Elofe, um, which is really interesting because of course she pops up everywhere. As does Loki, yes. as does Loki. Uh, as does Balor, uh, he pops up everywhere. Um, in fact, Morrigan Le Fay is on the um, 
is on the crew manifest for the Argo with Jason and the Argonauts, which is oh a, really yes yeah she's a she's the seventeenth member of the crew and you're going what this this Irish princess is on the Argo going what <laughs> she she gets around for sure she does yeah so like because um of course Jason put a, a request out there to go across all across Europe for, uh to go and find the Golden Fleece and he wants all the demigods of of Europe basically to join him on the quest and that's the reason why. Yeah. Hercules is on there, and uh, but yeah, and Morrigan Lefay is on there. Oh, you're certainly really well informed about Irish culture. You're putting me to shame. I, I don't know about <laughs> that. I just I read a, a number of books and articles, and I put a few things together. And uh, I guess the I, I guess it's how you how you pronounce it because in the video what I produced, I, I kind of got roasted in the comments quite a few times for my bad pronunciation of Irish words. Um, the, the Hill of Talte, uh, the the games that happen on uh, Lunasar. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the story itself. Because uh, so there was a particular queen who was of the the Firbolg, and she she became a slave to the Tahasti the Nan culture, and then she she died in fighting in battle, and they honoured her by burying her at Cathacrofin. And okay, then, uh, which is again poor words perhaps. Um, and they said they they had the feast then at. Uh, a really large tree, and that's where they hold the games of Talte now. The the, uh, the I think the annual games happen there. Because yeah, yeah. there's a really interesting a paragraph I, I found in a book from like 1812, and uh, with my quite a few pagan orientated friends, and uh, when I showed them this, they were like, "I didn't know that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. You're definitely teaching me something. They, they were like, they they, they obviously celebrate Lunasal, um, which is the first. It's the beginning of, of autumn, effectively, or the celebration, the end of summer. And uh, they were like, oh, we've always done it. I'm like, do you know why? Well, here's why. Here's why. All these stories kind of cross-culture and uh, cr pollinate into other areas. It's pretty fascinating. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Oh, man. Um, I will have to leave you soon because I have to go and host this ASAP thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, what, what, what time is that talk? Seven o'clock. All right, so let's just... Let's so before we go, then what we'll do here is if you could leave you, me your, what, where can people find you on the web um, and where can people get in contact with you? And then we'll draw this to a close. Oh, well, I'm on Facebook as Claire Davey, um, on Twitter as at tipsywitch78 with capital T. And yeah, if you want to email me or anything to ask me any questions, it's um, lowercase C for Charlie, L for Lima, O'Malley, O-M-A-L-L-E-Y at yahoo.co.uk so yeah but obviously you can contact me yourself christian you can put anybody in touch with me that would be interested to know more about any stories or anything all right sounds cool so what we'll do i'll draw us to a close then and uh, we'll catch up i'm i'm sure i'll see you in the, in the asap talk then at seven o'clock so awesome thanks yeah. so much for you know, taking the time out to have a chat with me and you know thanks so much for the kind words it makes me feel like uh, i'm doing something in the world <laughs> you are you're doing a great job it's no, good thanks. to see you looking so healthy <laughs> three weeks ago this was certainly not how i was feeling but no that's nope. good thank you uh wonderful I, I was trying to get strong again yeah definitely okay take care take care Lauren. see you soon bye anyway.